0: My friend Robin was like, "You know, some people don't have an internal monologue." And I was like, "How? Who I know, are these it people?" It shocks me every time. They live in paradise. <laughs> yeah. Who are they? They just live on a deserted island. Beautiful. You mean two no voices in your head? Yes. How <laughs> no. is there not like twenty things going on at once? Yeah. Oh, and I am.
1: With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season six of Bookshelfy, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. Join me and my incredible guests as we talk about the books you'll be adding to your 2023 reading list. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This year's 2023 shortlist is out now. Have you read any of these six brilliant books yet? Well, if not, head over to the Women's Prize website to discover them now. Joining me in the studio today is Josie Long. She may best be known for her stand-up comedy, but she's also a podcaster, playwright, co-founder of the education charity Arts Emergency, and now an author with her very own debut book, Because I Don't Know What You Mean and What You Don't. A brilliant, richly drawn collection of short stories. Josie started doing stand-up at the tender age of just 14 years old, and by the time she was 17, shortly before heading to Oxford University to study English, she won the BBC New Comedy Award. After graduating, she returned to the stand-up circuit and was named Best Newcomer at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2006. She's since become the first woman to be a triple nominee for the Edinburgh Comedy Award, and we are delighted to have her here with us to discuss some excellent books. Welcome to the podcast, Josie. Hi, thanks for having me. From studying English at uni, to writing your shows, to writing a book, what has been your relationship with literature?
0: Oh wow, I grew up in Orpington, which at the time, I felt like there wasn't that much cultural stuff near me. Mm. I I suppose there was like a museum, and and I used to go to the library a lot, but when I was a teenager, there was one secondhand bookshop on the high street. (laughs) And uh, it was called PTO Books, R-I-P, PTO Books. (laughs) And when I went in, he would always give me kind of special stuff. (laughs) So he'd give me kind of, like, poetry collections and, like, more kind of literary fiction and stuff like that. And so for me, it felt like a very cool thing to go in and, like, get my highbrow and unusual things. And as well, like, especially when I was a teenager, I I wanted to write short stories, and I, I started writing short stories. But I also, like loved pretending I was a real poet, you know, mm. so I had, like, a book I carried around that said very clearly, like, my poems, yeah. and, like, always be ostentatiously, like, oh, this, it's just my poems, you know? <laughs> and so I i think I really loved finding out about literature, like, English was something at school, and, yeah, I, I was very excited to do English at university because I really felt like I could find out about, mm. you know, all these things that I was really into. I've collected a lot of books and many of them I still haven't read and I just love having them there. I love knowing that they're there waiting for me and also kind of feeling that I understand why I've got them and yeah. what ideas I'm interested in, and also, do you know what? When I was younger, I really loved the idea of having my own personal library. Yeah, in you my do. House. You
1: do until you move house,
0: and then you've <laughs> got to lug all those books to
1: the next place. It was a romantic prospect, and now look
0: at us. <laughs> do you know what I'd say? At least books are easy to pack and you know? easy
1: to unpack. Yes, exactly. When you get into a new house, I just moved, and the first thing that me and my partner did was unpack the books because it was really, really pleasurable and stimulating. Mm-hmm. And and therapeutic and it it was methodical as well Mm -hmm. it was so easy everything else could wait but that bit we wanted to get it done and we absolutely loved getting
0: it done and every part of it you open it and it's like you remember all these dimensions to yourself and and what you want and what you aspire to and what you're interested in and i feel like for me it's like this way to kind of externalize all the things so you don't forget them Mm -hmm. you know like yes I am really interested in that yes I will go forward with that yes that was really important to me and it's all there
1: it's like it anthologizes your past your present and your future
0: beautiful yes
1: (laughs) so all the parts of yourself that you might not even have discovered yet they're laid out there's your history it's your bookshelf
0: yes and do you know what as well when I moved house it was my first time buying somewhere so it was my first time being able to like do anything in the house like put things on the walls permanently and I got friends a couple and they're both joiners and boat builders oh just so romantic (laughs) right and then they both built me these beautiful bookshelves from a cedar tree that had fallen over in a storm
1: okay so it was it was there for the taking (laughs)
0: yeah very romantic wasn't
1: even taken away from the natural
0: world no if anything it was helpful it was helpful
1: (laughs) that needed to happen well that is exactly what this podcast is all about it is exploring your life through the prism of the books that have shaped you. It is your bookshelfie. So let's get into your first book that you've brought today, which is Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys. This 1966 novel by the Dominican-British author serves as a post-colonial and feminist prequel to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, describing the background to Mr. Rochester's marriage from the perspective of his wife, the madwoman in the attic, Creole heiress Antoinette
0: Cosway. Tell us about this book. When did you read it? Gosh, so I actually can't recall when I first read it. I think I was in my early 20s. I'd read Sylvia Plath and that had intensely affected me. But this was the first book where it was written by another woman. And when I read it, it didn't just affect me. It's like it dragged me into the emotional world of the novel. And then when I'd finished it, I was still there. Mm -hmm. It, to me, felt the most powerful book I had ever read. And I was going to do Good Morning Midnight because I think it's a similar book, but this really was the first time. Actually, I'm saying that's a lie. The first time was Wuthering Heights okay. when I was a teenager. <laughs> but I was like, everyone's going to say Wuthering Heights. But this, this was more powerful than that because this Wuthering Heights, I almost felt like I got that wild connection with somebody's intense spirit, but the narrative itself didn't quite fulfil that whereas this it was like it felt like such an emotionally powerful book and on top of that such an incredibly vivid book with and yet so succinct too. What I love about Jean Reese's writing as well is it's short like I have such respect for like a brief writer who can but like in that short period of time it's like right you're right in it straight away and you're there and so I just found it to be the most incredibly emotionally powerful book like wonderful and um yeah it was the first time we afterwards I was like oh this has really upset me and left me shaken up and taken me into this world that is like where I actually don't think I was when I picked up this book you know <laughs> I was actually doing fine and then I read this book and I was like wow and I just yeah I love it for that reason and I love her I think she is the most wonderful unusual interesting person also it's funny because like i say i'm i'm obsessed with the fact that i got diagnosed with ADHD and i look at her and i'm like pure ADHD, pure ADHD <laughs> she started things she didn't finish them she had a yeah. life where she did this that the other but also i i'm quite into sad writing and i try to get away from it but i just am like i love um raymond carver short stories i loved richard jakes those were like my favorites when i was younger and Billy Childish, like, all these people just fucking write sad shit. And then when I saw this, it was like my dream, but it's, it's not just sad, it's darkly funny, and it's defiant and powerful, and I love that about her. And then I read an interview with her, and she said... And they said, Oh, you know, has your life been incredibly sad? You know, your books are incredibly sad. And she was like, No, I just wrote all my sadness into the books. I'm fine.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and cathartic. I just kinda
0: love that about her too.
1: You said that before you read it, you were absolutely fine, and then this incredible emotional experience mm. happened. What did this book interrogate for you? What did it make you feel? What were those emotions?
0: Oof gosh. I think it's it's about, like, cruelty and abandonment and loneliness. And a lot of her stuff is about people who, even though it isn't the end of their lives, feel as if their lives are over. And that's such a powerful, melodramatic feeling. And it doesn't feel like melodrama in the books, but I think I'm somebody who, like, I feel sometimes quite intense emotions. So, like, sometimes if I feel unhappy, I'll be like, it's the end of the world, and then I'll, like, have a biscuit, and I'm like, oh, no, it was fine. <laughs> it's just, it was a blip. And so I feel like th- this is the emotional register of her writing, is it's, like, people who really feel, like, all is lost and I could never possibly change it. And I, for some reason I really connect with that, and I'm like... But I don't feel like that's what I'm like in my day-to-day life, but I feel like when I read and when I connect with art, I'm like, that's what I love.
1: You mentioned your ADHD diagnosis there. Yeah. How did that change the way that you look at the world and also change the way that you look at yourself?
0: It changed the way I look at books because I am to diagnose authors from the past. Right. A hundred percent. I'm <laughs> like, well, obviously i did. obviously. Do you know, it was very helpful in a way because I've always felt awkward and weird and like I didn't quite fit in. And to understand that it might be because my brain is functioning in a slightly different way at different times has been so useful. And even just to like... It's going to be so, sound so silly, but like to see all these memes and be like, oh my God, I feel so seen. Like to to feel so seen is incredible. It's been very helpful for me because it's given me a new framework to understand why certain things in my life did or didn't go a certain way, why I have these like melodramatic emotional swings, looking back at my family, seeing it kind of through the generations Mm. although they would absolutely not accept that themselves but nonetheless (laughs) um yes it's been really interesting but the only problem is i'm still in like the i think i guess honeymoon phase of diagnosis where i am really like so i'd better tell you i have ADHD, (laughs) and i feel like in five years i wouldn't do do you know what by then i will have got over it a little bit more but yeah it's been a big deal for me yeah
1: we were talking about neurodivergence actually on radio one A little while ago, we do a show called Life Hacks about issues affecting young people. We had a guest on who said she'd always felt like her mind was all these spinning plates. And as soon as she got her ADHD diagnosis, rather than getting angry with herself for dropping a spinning plate, she just learned to be a bit kinder because she knew why it was happening. And she didn't need to be so angry with herself for it. Yes, And that sounded like quite transformative, like actually a very small thing, but actually a very big thing. Yes,
0: definitely, definitely. It was the same with emotions. Like when I was younger, and and it relates to literature because literature was where I found these like extremes of emotion and longing and yearning Mm. and all these feelings that I had that I think were at least in part due to emotional aspects of neurodivergence. And so it was hard to weather those storms when I was younger, whereas now I feel a lot more like... Yes, I'm feeling this, but this isn't forever, and this is part of my brain. It's not necessarily reality. or yeah, it's just given me a handle to almost like give myself a level of remove from my emotions, you know, to put them in into something else. yeah, and also what's funny is in in writing, it's been very helpful because I've been writing these stories that are like first person and they're very intense internal monologues. And that is very natural to me because I have a very what should we say? Like vivid mental life, but then when I found that my friend Robin was like, you know, some people don't have an internal monologue. And I was like, how? Who know, are these it people? It shocks me every time. They live in paradise. <laughs> yeah. Who are they? They just live on a deserted island. You mean Beautiful no voices in your head. Yes. How no. is there not like twenty things going on at once? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I envy them, but I'm also like, <laughs> at least I-, I can use this to like really, yeah. really channel it into understanding kind of complicated things or I don't know you can
1: harness it for you do you think you, you would have done anything differently in your career or in your life if you had known earlier
0: oh god let's not even get into it <laughs> I'm 40 years old uh, yeah I mean like I can look at when I was eight and I had real problems at school I can look at when I was struggling in my A levels I can look at when I got to university and I felt completely abandoned in this like odd way I can look at relationships I had oh my god I could look at something every single year in my mm. life and say had I known I could have but at the same time, like perhaps had I known, I wouldn't have made art in the same way, and perhaps had I known, I wouldn't have like done the weird, impulsive shit I've done, which some of it was amazing, yeah. you know. And, it's and brilliant. So, <laughs> it's like fun, yeah. yeah. And and I think as well, like I just don't know. Like my mum sort of had to frame the type of brains that she and I have in a certain way to give us like a way of navigating the world because we didn't know what that was, and I think. In some ways, that framework has served me very well because she was just sort of like, "Yes, yes, you've got to like storm ahead and do this like the other," you know. So it's it's complicated. It's interesting, uh, and I suppose the worst part is I can't do anything well, about exactly. it. <laughs> it's exactly. so funny, isn't it?
1: Let's move on to your second bookshelf you book oh, now, which that. is *Hope in the Dark* yes. by Rebecca Solnit. When the worldwide movement against war in Iraq failed to persuade the Bush administration against military action. Many activists felt that their actions had been futile. This book arises out of this moment. Arguing millions marching against war did not constitute a failure, but a step towards success. At a time when social and environmental pessimism can make us feel powerless, this book delivers a clear, well-argued case for hope. Can you tell us why you picked it?
0: Oh, firstly, I just love her. And I love what she manages to do as a writer because she can write things that are, I guess, like polemic or just a political argument. But they also just have so much poetry and story and personality in them as well. So they're beautiful books, the, the things she writes. But this book in particular, oh, I just love it. Like, for me, as somebody who kind of... I, I write stand-up and it's a, often about, like, being on the left and losing because that's how it's been the last 12 yeah. years, you know? And, and that's quite a hard thing to be like, right, I want to write a show about how we can try and stay optimistic and not feel defeated. And it's like, oh, God, we've been defeated. Right, OK, I want to write a show. And, and to read this, I felt like it was really helpful in, in not just understanding, but also beautifully summarising what is important in terms of trying to, I guess, like be useful to political struggle or, I don't know, Like I, I feel silly saying stuff like that, but, like, she says that hope isn't, like, bland optimism, saying that everything's fine. Hope is an axe to knock down the door to allow you to take action. She sort of gives it a power for you. So with Arts Emergency, we have this phrase that's like, optimism is a weapon, and, and what what we mean by it is that, basically, that it's something that, if you have it, it's a power that can't be taken away from you by powers that be or by money or lack of it or by even by legislation you know you cannot legislate away people's ability to carry ideas and to to keep that kind of power and that defiance and um yeah so that book just got me through a lot and and it was really funny because I, I I also there's a really good Howard Zinn quote that's about like being hopeful in dark times isn't being foolish it's thinking about how the history of mankind is as well as a history of cruelty it's a history of cooperation kindness incredible feats of like love and and stuff like that and so like it's a similar book to that and it gives clear examples of different movements that have had these successes and um, I used to do it at the end of my show as a joke I used to read a bit and then I'd had a bit earlier about a quote from To Kill a Mockingbird and then at the end of the quote I'd be like oh let's let's kill the bird let's get the bird and then like at the end of my show it was like very serious reading this beautiful quote from Rebecca, Rebecca Solnit and then at the end being like and we've got to get the bird let's get the bird <laughs> and so like I have this lovely connection to this book in particular because I used it in my show every single day for a couple of years but I also just yeah I really love her writing I find it inspiring.
1: I'm gonna take um hope as an act yeah. I needed to hear that today.
0: Oh my God, please have a look at the book as well. Yeah. Because it's so full of these, this is what I love about it. Sometimes as well, you don't just need the thing to be said, but you need the thing to be said so well and yes. so succinctly you can carry it around. A concise queen we love to see. Yes. Oh
1: my <laughs> god! And it's optimism is.
0: Oh, so this is Arts emergency. So we say optimism is a weapon. Is a weapon. Okay. Um, Because it's about like creativity, not just in terms of creating a piece of art, but in terms of, Allowing yourself to believe that the future can be different and that yeah. you can create it, um, I think is really important.
1: I really, really needed to hear that, and I'm really oh! happy to have it now in my toolkit to take into the day. So thank you. Oh,
0: God, yeah. I hope I haven't misquoted it. And you'll no. be like, She says, hope's a trumpet. But it, what the <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Oh, shit. But it doesn't matter if you did because
1: it was good anyway. It doesn't I'm, matter. If she didn't
0: say it, just <laughs> pretend I said it and I wrote it. <laughs> But I think she did, I think she did.
1: talk a little bit about your alternative reality tour. Oh, um, yeah. Which is a reaction against political and social doom and gloom. Can you just tell us a bit about about that? This was
0: quite a long time ago. About 10 years ago, I... No more. (laughs) 12 years ago, me and my friend were in the process of setting up our emergency, but there was like a big atmosphere of protest at the time, and everyone I knew and everyone I was meeting, we were all just involved in like attending the student protests, trying to help make UK Uncut actions really um, special and exciting and just getting involved with that. And it became something that was like very much a big part of my life. But it was after a little while that I sort of felt like, you know, there's all that chat about activism where you've got got fighting against, but you've also got kind of showing why you're fighting and also like not fighting, like the, the radical part of activism, which is about love and fellowship and communion and things which are not related to commodification you know and so me and my friends and we i've done it a few times and it's been some of the most interesting and unusual things i've ever done where we just would get loads of writers performers people in this van and we just go around the country and pitch up somewhere and I would like tweet about it, so that would get me lots of very like nice, gentle cardigan-wearing people. And then also, also I've noticed you're wearing a cardigan. It's a massive compliment. Um,
1: <laughs> it's very itchy, though. I am just gonna say, we've been talking. We were talking about this before we started recording. Very itchy cardigan.
0: <laughs> and that's a problem for the crowd, you know. Everyone's <laughs> yeah, just scratching, just
1: scratching themselves. Everyone's trying to trying to concentrate.
0: <laughs> um, but it was like very gentle yeah. people who have long been my crowd, who I who I love dearly. And then also, what we would do is we would just go around like flyering to anyone who was out and about. And so we would have these like really wild shows full of teenagers who just didn't give a shit. And like we would get people from the local area who would like come and perform like um like one time there was this we met this boy at a skate park who came and like sang um a cover of a George Ezra song and it was so incredibly beautiful. It was like I, I like genuinely getting like tingles thinking about it because his voice was incredible and it was like in I think it was in Trowbridge in a car park. So basically, it was like this exercise in, like, we don't care if this seems silly or ridiculous. We don't care if this is a failure. We're trying to make happenings happen. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, you start looking at public space in a different way. So you suddenly are, like, round the back of a shopping centre and you see three flights of stairs arranged in a corner. And you're like, that's a theatre, you know. And we had this bed sheet. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah. And then we had this bed sheet that we got the logo on and we would try and string that up. And th- the first time we did it, we had this amazing tour manager who really, joked. Jo- Jokingly, but very took it seriously so he would use the lights of the van to light the banner and he'd be like five minutes this is your five minute call performance. like it was very yeah. sweet <laughs> and it, and it was one of those things I think I've done it three or four times and all the times I've done it I have had some of the most unusual experiences of my life be it staying in a sort of semi-ruined stately home run by a very unusual activist and swimming in the river in the morning before we did this thing in a bus shelter, or suddenly in Leicester in an underpass performing to 200 people. We had no idea how they got there, having one of the most beautiful shows I've ever had in my life with loads of comedians, often just doing silly stuff, not even really doing political stuff. But the point of it was to say, if we can make this happen, being as we are. And we would also, we, we got a grant at one point from Sussex University. I don't even know if it was by fair means or foul. But we <laughs> used it to like buy food, like pizzas and stuff. So every show would be like, and now free food. And then we have this massive box of books. So we're like, and free book. And we just like give stuff. And it was like, if we can create this thing that is nothing to do with money, that is like free and unusual and... And also kind of, there's a situationist slogan which is like, we will ask for nothing, we will demand nothing, we shall take, occupy. And I like this idea that we were going into spaces that are often semi-privatised and being like, we are occupying this space for the glory of fun and then we will leave. Mm -hmm. And it was funny too because we had like brushes with the police and I just don't know now how that would work and I've been wanting to do it again under the banner, this is not a protest. But... With my young kids at the moment, I'm really frightened of being arrested, which is sad. But, yeah, we we never got any hassle. I remember once we got in Margate. We were in this... Was it Margate? In somewhere. We were in this sort of old Victorian shelter. And then the police showed up and they were like, what are you doing? And we were like, it's just a show. They were like, it's not... A- an Anti establishment, or something like that. I mean, it's anti Tory, and they were like, That's fine. <laughs> we were like, Oh my god. Um, yeah, we had loads of fun experiences. I wrote a really long blog about it a while ago, but it got taken off the internet not deliberately, it was like the, we didn't pay the domain. Like, yeah, fine. We were like, This is a long time ago, but yeah, it was a really interesting thing to do, and I yeah, I really cherish the experiences yeah. that it gave me.
1: Well, perhaps in future when your kids are a little bit older and the threat of being arrested is, is not as <laughs> terrifying.
0: Yeah. Well, also, <laughs> because, bring them along. You've got kids, what are they going to do? Bring them along, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Bailey's is proudly supporting
1: the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether shaken in a cocktail, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Check out baileys.com for our favourite Bailey's recipes. Uh, It's time to talk about your third book now, which is Experiments in Imagining Otherwise by Lola Olufemi. In this book, Lola Olufemi offers an experimental exploration of the possibility of living differently, grounded in black feminist thought and political organising. It shows how the imagination is central to revolutionary movements as an active and collective practice. The quote that I, I know is... Particularly important to you is after defeat, reenchantment is necessary. Um, and your current comedy show, Reenchantment, was inspired by that. So, can you tell us about why this resonated with you?
0: Well, so I, I love the way you kind of introduced it because it, it is about imagination and uh, like political imagination being so important. But it, I think sometimes when you feel particularly defeated or you feel particularly unable to feel like you can be useful you need to hear from other people sometimes I feel like we're all going along to the same goal and sometimes you're going to be exhausted and other people are not and you need to listen to the people who are like full of ideas and thought and I don't know something about the fact that I'm 40 and I think she wrote this at 25 and to listen to her like energy and spirit but it's not just that this is such a it's such an interesting enigma of a book because it's so poetic and fragmented and unusual and literary but it's also a clear book about political writing it has things like she i'm going to show you this and it's quite embarrassing but she's like I believe in collaboration so I've left this space for you write something and I just wrote thank you Lola I want to live now in the future and be unafraid because at the time I came to this book I felt very I suppose defeated like after the 2019 election it felt very very sad and very scary to look at all the things that the Conservatives had planned and, and are now enacting and to feel that even though we had fought very hard it was now this state of kind of ignominy and defeat and and so she almost starts with it. She does say, like, you're looking around, you're saying you're defeated. Yeah, of course, you're going to get defeated over and over and over again. And it's it was just to hear that was exactly what I need. It was like, yeah, this is part of it. Why did you think? And sort of what I like as well is she is, I think, very radical in her thought and her writing. And so she's not really interested in, parliamentary organizing she's not really interested in talking about parliamentary politics she's interested in understanding and connecting with radical thinkers and activists looking back at people on top of it like she's like interested in thinking about time in a really fun sci-fi sci-fi is probably not the wrong word She wants to go back in time and inhabit those places in this book. So it's it's just one of the most interesting, bold, enigmatic, beautiful books I've ever read in my life. And you can look through it like I've just underlined so much of it. And I I felt that it was exactly the book I needed at the time. She says, to try is to take the prospect of the future now, then to come so seriously that we dedicate our lives to living in and with it. I want things bigger than they seem. I wish to be engulfed by the horizon. You want that too. You can want to be frenzied enough by your own yearning, frenzied enough to risk everything. I belong to a legacy of those who saw that this world had an offer and refused it. I just, like, honestly, I could read you the whole book. It's so like, galvanising, yeah. isn't it? what about this? No poetry and no hope as an empty gesture of optimism. Hope as a riot or uprising or revolution or many other names. Simply steal everything, burn everything. And I'm like, <laughs> fucking yes. Well, we just <laughs> had
1: hope as an axe two minutes yeah. ago and now. <laughs> I mean, listen,
0: you need to... You have, I think, you know, the work of literature and the work of all these things is like this framework to support you, to know you're not alone. And when you mm-hmm. see these other people... And you feel you can learn from them, but not just that you feel like you can be in communion with them. And yeah, I just loved it. And like, I I am grateful for it. And I'm just grateful as a 40 year old for hers as a 25 year old as well. Like, I hope this doesn't sound too embarrassing, but I think it's a fantastic book. And I have bought it for loads of my friends (laughs) because it's, it's part fiction and part poetry and and then part just very clear polemic and. And also, do you know what? Sometimes I think I love to read books by people whose politics perhaps I aspire to be more radical. So when I read this, I'm like, yeah, this is very important to remember constantly, you know.
1: Well, you said politics is not always parliamentary, and that's not what she's um, dealing with here. Politics imbues every single part of our lives. Yes. So for you, how have you taken your defeats and grown from them?
0: I suppose the, the important thing is you might feel very sad or despairing. But firstly, it's not about you personally. It's about the collective. And like, what really I really like about her book as well is she's really kind of talking about how the individual artist is like too imbued with like capital and stuff like that. And actually, it's like the things we can make collectively, collective joy, radical joy, things like that, you know. So, yeah, I guess the first thing you do is you, you have to get over yourself. And then luckily for me, what's been really, really life-changing moving to Glasgow is for the first time in my life, I feel I can stay somewhere. And I feel like I've got a bit in my stand-up about how all my friends up there are like more left-wing than me and I'm the bougie one and I absolutely (laughs) love it. But basically, I feel like it's such a long process of learning for me how to try to be useful in my community, try to start volunteering, start understanding... like. It's going to sound really silly and I hope my friends listening don't mind me saying this but we've got a sort of little mutual aid WhatsApp group between about 15 families who are all friends but some of them we don't really know and what we do is we, can anyone watch this baby for an hour, can anyone help me with this and we all just mutually aid each other and and it's such a small thing but it feels like a way to practice in a little microcosm how we also wish to be the whole rest of the time, you know, and a way to live it in a small way so that we all do get to kind of feel in community with each other like quite deeply. And it's just really fucking nice. And like, I suppose for me as well, it was very cathartic to be like, oh, I don't actually have to think about the Labour Party ever again in my life. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) That was quite nice. Because I think, I sort of think maybe the history of the Labour Party is where it radical politics often get sucked in and murdered so no I can't say that I think often people's hopes and dreams can be trampled by the Labour Party and so for me to sort of say oh maybe I can just see if I can like spend the rest of my life trying to volunteer at community groups spend the rest of my life trying to do more useful things that doesn't mean that I don't want to try and influence politics in a wider way but I'm a comedian I've been doing shows on stage about the Tories or whatever, for 12 years. And unfortunately, those did not sway the elections. I will continue to do that, but that's only one part of like what it can mean to have a political life. And so when I read books like Lola's book, I feel really like I want to foster a radical spirit and not pretend that that is in any way unrealistic or pretend that that is any way childish or anything like that because those are the ways that people react to that often because I actually think it's the most like real and powerful thing and you look around the world and you see it everywhere you know and I don't know it's it's funny because like you're probably always going to feel at odds with I, I feel cheesy but with capitalism I suppose and so you have to like keep reminding yourself that actually there is an alternative and you you can work towards it but you have to try and put yourself in it as well I don't I don't know what I'm saying I feel like no
1: you know I mean this book is at its um heart intersectionally feminist definitely and something I always say is that as a black woman joy is radical yeah compassion which you've just spoken about compassion on the smallest on the most local level is radical yeah. That is living yeah. a, a radical life.
0: <laughs> no, no, but the fact that she's a young black woman yeah. is really important, like, for me, as an older white woman, to, like, sit and read her work and, like, I don't know, like, it is really important yeah. on an intersectional level, you know.
1: Let's move on to your fourth book, bookshelping book now, which is Devotions. <laughs> New and selected poems by Mary Oliver. I see it sitting there on the little table next
0: to That shocked me for a second because I so I feel like you know, it's I think it's like in the office where he says, What's your favorite album? and he's like, I think it would be the best of you yes. know. And I felt really you but- can choose,
1: you can choose a compilation, it's absolutely fine.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, this is a bit of a curveball, I suppose, because I really like the nature writing of Raymond Carver, mm-hmm. who, you know, sad short stories. And then in his 40s, he's like, guys, did you know nature exists? It's great. And I feel like that's a vibe I can really understand.
1: I only discovered nature a few years ago, <laughs> yeah. but oh my gosh, it's changed oh. everything.
0: But also...
1: I just didn't know. <laughs> did you...
0: Grow- I grew up in the suburbs I grew of- up in
1: the countryside. I wasn't thinking and I wasn't appreciating. I mean, I was, yeah, I was enjoying... Teenagers. But I wasn't. I wasn't taking in it how transformative and how transcendental, yeah. like the experience of nature was. I was just taking it for granted, and yeah. I, it wasn't until I needed it because we were being kept inside yes. that all of a sudden it hit me. Oh, you need that. You
0: need it back. Yes, and we're beings that like yeah. desperately need it. That's something she says at, at the end of Experiments in Imagining Otherwise. I think. Yeah, we like desperately need to connect with nature, and, and I suppose reenchantment part of that as a word in a political sense is about reconnecting with the world, the mystery of the world, but also with nature and each other. So it was like kind of a statement of intent as well because it's so important. and so magical. Yeah, with Mary Oliver... She's somebody that I, I make a, a show called Shortcuts and we've been making it for 10 years and my producer, Ellie, is wonderful and is so full of new inspirations all the time. And she's actually who got me into the writing of Mary Oliver. Um, she's a nature poet. She's kind of like a mystic poet, really. She likes to think about like life and death and nature. Mm. And it's very much about a person listening and in community with nature. It's not somebody kind of telling you how they know all about it, you know. I think it's, like, got a real mysticism to it. Like, just the first thing I open up is her saying, I don't know. Like, so much of it is her focusing around, like, I don't know, I don't understand, I listen to this, I, like, call to it. And about, kind of, how you should live your life, Mm. but also... And similarly to White Sock, as see, she has this way of writing about nature and landscape and colour that is very beautiful and nourishing and like, terse but satisfying, you know? And I just really love it. I think she's really cool.
1: It's just these incredibly beautifully wrought observations of, yes. of nature. You start to see the world in a different way from reading her poetry, which is the, the most gorgeous experience. And I know that one of the themes in Reenchantment your last Edinburgh show was to reconnect with nature and beauty. How have you been doing that?
0: Well, you know, it's funny, I can't get over that I now live when I was younger and one of the reasons I moved to Glasgow was every time I would ever get up to Glasgow, I'd, I'd arrive and I'd be happy, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd be like, oh, it's weird, I'm so happy here. <laughs> and then uh, there's a place called Gurek that's got an outdoor swimming pool that obviously my favourite thing in the world. And you go along the side of the Clyde as it comes right out on a train for like 40 minutes. And when you get there, you can get little ferries uh, out to different peninsulas and islands. And the view is so stunning. It is like these just hills in the distance over this beautiful bay and the fact that that is 45 minutes away from where I live I can't believe Mm. it and so I suppose it's like I don't necessarily know how well I've yet done it like I've been swimming in like locks and I love that I've been to like little trips to islands and stuff with my daughter but I feel like it's very much like the direction I want to go like quite often when I write a stand-up show I almost write it aspirationally for myself I'm like this is where I want to be and if I'm doing this over and over again this is my what I want my focus to be so yeah it's like I would like to do that more I've been in sort of what I call pure maternity recently which is like just everything's about the baby and now slow and steady where I live you can get a local bus out to um the Campsie fells which is like a beautiful little walk with waterfalls you can get buses to the Kafkin Braes, which are like some hills nearby there's so much so close to me like hills and Munros, and I just see it and I'm like this is going to be my life it's going to be my future and I wanted it for my kids too my big girl I've got a joke about it in my show but basically I put her into this outdoor nursery and I was like she's going to be this little woodland <laughs> child and she loves it in the summer but unfortunately in Scotland basically for nine months it is not <laughs> the summer and so during the winter she just comes back like, like shell-shocked you know, just like, ah! and I do feel awful. Like, you know, she'll take off her little welly and she'll just have this ring of, of mud that, like, I'm like, oh, God, like, genuinely, have you got, like, trench foot on your foot? Like, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting thing. But at the same time, she can climb a tree. It's so like, good anything. for her, yeah, yeah.
1: It's so good for her in the, in, overall in the long
0: run. Yes, and also, do you know what, like, in my life, similarly, like you, I, I, I discovered nature later on. I didn't really have an upbringing that had a lot of experiences in nature, really. And when I realised how like wonderful it is to kind of like be in cold water or be in the middle of a forest and things like that, it was like so transformative for me. And I feel like it's so good for the brain in terms of calm. And my daughter, I think, has a similar brain to me. And I know that when she's in the woods, it gives her a real sense of like calm and and. To happiness and play and like she loves playing with sticks and stuff it feels very pastoral and like romantic you know but then she'll be like um murray pushed me over and then and i'm like oh god i'm sorry
1: (laughs) is that what prompted the move from london to to glasgow was it was it for the kids or
0: part of it yeah do you know what it was a lot of things it was i have been working with my friend doug for about twelve years now making films together and we he lives there and we wanted to work together more. I have lots of friends up there and, and also do you know what having friends who also have young families who I know we share a kind of mm. sensibility and, and share values and the idea that we could like live our lives together was really thrilling. I love the architecture. I'm also just like an embarrassing little suck up for Glasgow. Like I'm so <laughs> embarrassing but like I think the culture is great. It's I think it's a great city. Yes
1: It's and a great city.
0: People are so warm and friendly and I feel like it has a tradition of radical politics that I largely really admire, it has a modern radical politics that I want to learn from and like just just be around and like, yeah I just love it so much, I love all the literature I love walking around just like, oh look at the sandstone, and I even love the rain, I'm like this is great, there's so many kinds, it's wonderful, so yeah but it was partly, I, I wanted I mean I couldn't afford to stay in London and have what what I felt was like a quality of life and I just was becoming so incredibly embittered after 20 years of renting like I think it was important for me to leave before I started committing anti-landlord crimes you know (laughs) I just didn't I didn't want to be be criminalized myself through through anger um and so I think yeah it was important in lots of ways
1: When you get to a place and you even love the rain and you find yourself walking around saying i love the sandstone you know you've made the right choice
0: thank you do you know what i very much appreciate that very much
1: (laughs) right josie it's time to talk about your fifth book that you've brought today there it is which is drinking coffee elsewhere by zizi packer this is the acclaimed 2003 debut from american writer zizi packer about the lives of young black men and women in small town america A collection of eight blistering short stories, this book explores what it means to be human and deals with race, gender, identity and the need for belonging. Why have you brought it with you today?
0: Well, so do you know the thing I would add as well that it deals with that is, I think, a way that I initially really connected with it. It's about class as well. It's about people who have been the prize pony of their school or of their... uh, high school or whatever and like in particular there's one about someone going to Yale and about like playing all the games right to try so hard to get into these rarefied establishments and then when you get there realising how marginalised you will remain in them and for me so it's about how class intersects with race definitely and intersects with gender and, and all kinds of other things. But that was the level that I felt like, oh, I really do understand certain parts of this. And so then to read the writing about race, too, was so helpful because it felt like another layer of learning and understanding. We can all
1: understand. We should all understand.
0: Yeah, yeah. totally. But on top of that, like, oh, it was just so exciting to read something. And I know now that obviously this is 20 years old, but it's still very recent, (laughs) you know, to read something modern, that gave me the same sense of excitement and exhilaration as it did when I read people like Raymond Carver or Richard Jakes. I feel like the writing is so wonderful and the stories are so good. A very mysterious writer is how I would describe Zizi Packer because I read this and I was like, more please. And now I can't find more. And I'm like, why not and this more? Is the, this is the debut. <laughs> yeah. But I, I know that she's she has a very like important career and she does lots of teaching and writing. and But this book itself, like, yeah, I really felt like there were parts of it that I really really connected to about not fitting in, perhaps being a somewhat alone, not necessarily having certain like support networks around you about definitely as somebody f- coming from not money going to these moneyed environments. But also I loved sort of reading these stories about you know places and communities that are don't know about I'm not a part of I interrupted myself from something else I was trying to say and I'm so annoyed at myself oh yeah the complexity she manages to get into them so even like
1: these short stories yeah the subtlety yeah
0: yeah, like the subtlety of the writing like drinking coffee elsewhere I was rereading it the other day and I was just crying because it's so beautiful and such ah just such masterful writing where it's like drinking coffee elsewhere the story is about this incredibly bright Young woman who has had a very difficult, abusive upbringing. She's at this like elite university and she has never felt worse or more alone. And it's about her defensiveness and her inability to let her guard down and about a sort of near brush with friendship. Oh my God, I'm going to cry because it's so beautifully done where you read it and you are so aware that what you are reading is the opposite of what this character thinks and feels and how she manages to build that. So you're so deeply in that character's internal world and, like, it's incredible that as you read it, you're like, how are you doing this incredibly nuanced thing where I know that this person is thinking this, feeling this other different thing, is trying to project this. The way that she builds worlds is just astonishing and then i wrote a story about um teen debaters who were like again the real prize pony of their like state school and she has one about some a young person doing debating and what i do often with books is i if something really has really jumped out at me, or meant something to me, I fold the yeah, page down.
1: Don't, don't worry, we, there is no judgement
0: in this space <laughs> about
1: doing that, doing exactly the same.
0: But then, do you know what my plan always is? To go back through the book yeah. and underline yeah. so that I can undo the thing. So, and then I didn't, and so then I'm like, like, this is really important. And then I'm like, <laughs> wait, I'll have to reread the whole page and tell you why, and then I'll have to think about why. And it's just frustrating. But yeah, there's so much, and and I thought about it before I did this. This is a um, a page about from that particular book where, she talks about this person pretending and how they like making up stories about themselves and dishing them out to different people but if they keep doing that they won't be able to be honest
1: yeah you can't keep up with it
0: yeah and then she says like she says, dr rayburn would never realize that pretending was what had got me this far Like,
1: fuck oh, know like yeah um it's crazy. I do the same thing as you, where I fold down the pages because the, the author has articulated something that I couldn't put into words. Yes. But then when you go back and read it and you yourself know the nuance and you know the layers mm. because you've been there, it means so much. Very similarly, I went to Cambridge um, oh, well, and upon arrival, you know what? It wasn't the lack of black faces that shocked me because I was used to that. I'd grown up in Newcastle. It was the lack of anyone from the North. <laughs> oh, and the way the North believe- is treated like a novelty. And like it was a novelty, people oh. asking if you've got electricity. And oh, and God. did so many of the same things that you described that happened in this book that are so beautifully articulated in this book. Where, what you've just said, it just resonates so much. Pretending, everything has been pretending. You feel like everything's pretending up until that point because it, it had to be. And your defensiveness is through the roof, I guess.
0: Oh my God, you should please read this book. Well, I, yeah, it's so I'm familiar with these important. stories
1: because they just... It hit, she hits the nail on the head. And I sometimes think that we don't realise how many people she might be hitting the nail on the head for because in that moment, you felt so alone.
0: Yeah. And the truth is, you weren't. But also, do you know what? This to me is like, it, it is what intersectional feminism means because mm-hmm. it's like, we can like we can understand each other's experiences better because of the fact that class intersects with this and we can like really understand how the world works Mm. and how we can like be I don't know, like how we can try and change it or something. And it's so funny because I'm not saying I, I know it's not the same experience, but I think from a class perspective where you're like, no one else here didn't have money. All these people have so much money. And it's like it represents the same thing of it doesn't matter how much I try and like strive for this. I will never have that secret extra thing you know but you will because you do
1: because there are other things yeah and the other things
0: are more important <laughs> that you have oh my god
1: um, Josie your own debut fiction book is a collection of short stories as well did ZZ Packet influence you at all have you always loved short stories do, do you feel like there's a specific type of sustenance that they give you that maybe longer form fiction can't.
0: Definitely. Yeah, Yeah, and definitely. Although it's interesting because I read this book when I was halfway through my book and so now I'm like, I hope I haven't ripped her off. It was such (laughs) a meaningful experience. But like, yeah, definitely. Being able to sort of read these stories about people fighting against inequality, I suppose, or just fighting for a space in the world or just like, how complicated things can be and how difficult that can be. I really loved... Yeah, I love short stories so much. I love um, Raymond Carver, obviously. I just read Kelly Link's book quite recently, Get in Trouble, which was so exciting because it's short stories about relationships and life but also quite, like, magic realism, unusual. Just these, like, things added in. George Saunders I really love. I, yeah, I love when people can really construct a world and you're in it and then you're out of it and you're like... Oh my god how is this so small and it's been so big you know
1: As we said before we love a concise queen I am actually going to ask you probably the hardest question so if you did have to choose just one of these books I know they've affected you all in very different ways they give you very different things which one would it be which is your favorite
0: Oh Of course this is going to seem like a curveball because I feel like it's the one I was least like this but I would probably keep the Mary Oliver because mm. and here's why like I'm taking this far too literally but i've just been rereading these stories so they're fresh in my mind i've been carrying around Lola's book for about 3 years so i feel like very fresh in the mind um rebecca Solnit, that's like that's not going anywhere whereas this i feel would give me a little bit of beauty and reflection going forwards you know i could dip in and out and have a cry about william blake or whatever you know and then <laughs> then close it again so i feel like just in terms of like peace and sustenance i feel like that might be the the best one I don't know. It's funny, isn't it?
1: It's hard. And yeah. also, you don't have to.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not true, is it? <laughs> you don't have to.
1: And like that you said, well, that's not going anywhere. That's what I need to hold on to right now. I'm not taking any of these books away from you. <laughs> thank like you. I really appreciate them to that. today. <laughs> and Josie, I just want to say a massive thank you for everything that you've given us today because it has been such... A stimulating chat oh thank you um, honestly
0: thank you so much yeah it's been wonderful to talk to you as well and like I really appreciate you like being so kind and understanding about my choices
1: I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast this podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time